Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast, a conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. I'm your host, Ian Gillespie, and I'm here to ask the questions and find the answers you need to know. We want to help our listeners know how to prevent and detect illness and how to navigate our healthcare system. Be sure to subscribe to the Doc Talks podcast to stay up to date on new episodes and follow us on Twitter at St. Joseph's London or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Hello, I'm Ian Gillespie. Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast brought to you by St. Joseph's Healthcare London. The health and wellness of our children is something all parents worry about, even more so for those who have to navigate the healthcare system on behalf of their children. On today's episode, we're talking to Dr. Caitlin Cassidy, a physiatrist. <laughs> I had to think about that. A physiatrist at St. Joseph's <laughs> Healthcare London's Parkwood Institute and an associate professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Western University. She's also part of the Department of Pediatrics at LHSC and is a clinician in Parkwood Institute's Transitional and Lifelong Care Program, called the TLC. And that provides care for patients with health and rehab needs due to conditions that begin in childhood, such as cerebral palsy and spina bifida. Part of the TLC team's role is to help young patients with these conditions transition from pediatric to adult care. So we're going to be delving into that a bit today. Dr. Cassidy, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So first off, I stumbled, I think, over the pronunciation. Can you explain what a physiatrist does or is? Yeah, that's a great opening question. One I get asked a lot, even by family members. It's not something that's very well known in the medical field, but probably will be more and more as time goes by. So the sort of long formal name for physiatry is called physical medicine and rehabilitation. It's its own subspecialty area of medicine. We as physiatrists are dedicated to sort of the functional well-being of patients who have conditions that may otherwise limit their function. And so there's many sort of broad areas of physiatries. Some people would think in terms of, you know, those categories that might make it a bit easier to sort of visualize. So there are physiatrists who work, for example, predominantly with people who've had stroke or people who've had a spinal cord injury or acquired brain injury or people who have chronic pain or people who've had nerve injury or other conditions like that. My particular subspecialty area in physiatry is related to conditions of childhood onset, as you mentioned. So I take care of people who have had things like cerebral palsy or spina bifida, and in particular, I focus on adults with those conditions mm. and adolescents who are moving out of the pediatric healthcare system with those right. conditions. So obviously, that's a big concern. I mean, I know some people who have children, and those children are now adults who have had, you know, developmental problems and so forth. Yeah. And it's so difficult, obviously, as you get older, which is I'm sure we'll get into. But so when that happens, when your child has to make this, first of all, what age does that happen? When do 
patients make that transition from pediatric care to adult-based care? So in Ontario, that's sort of mandated by health policy as opposed to anything else. And so in general, that happens at age 18. So when people hit age 18, they are no longer typically cared for in pediatric healthcare settings. And so they sort of ready or not have to make a jump to adult care systems at that point. Or ideally, if we're doing planned transition, then we would think about instituting elements of transition before that so that it's not this sort of hard line in the sand where you knew everything about the pediatric system before and then you have to leave it all behind and learn the adult system all at once. So what does that involve? Is that a difficult transition? It can be a very difficult transition. It's just a very different culture. The resources are totally different. Even if you imagine not just sort of the very specific healthcare needs of this patient population, but even things like the supports they received in Mm -hmm. school during their pediatric years that they no longer have access to on the adult side. The funding programs are different. Their medical needs may be changing. Some of our patients may be transitioning to university or trying to find work or volunteer opportunities. So there's a lot of change going on in their lives around that time, medical, sort of social, and otherwise. And so it can be a very fraught time with lots of sort of stress and concern for individuals and their family members and support systems. And again, you're with the Parkwood Institute's Transitional and Lifelong Care Program. First of all, how long has that existed? So we officially came into being, I think, in 2015, we got approved. And so we've been around for a couple of years now. So you only deal with, you deal with children and the transition to adult services? Yeah. So we very sort of purposely, you know, the name sort of says it all. It's for the period of transition, but also lifelong care. We wanted to make sure that we weren't sort of transitioning people to nowhere. And there's not Mm. really another great destination for a lot of people with these conditions otherwise. And so we we try to meet people when they're adolescents, when we can. Sometimes we don't get to meet them until they're older, and that's okay too. And then we provide ongoing care for this patient population through their adult years as well. Is one of the problems that there are fewer programs for adults? I mean, or... Is that a concern? Yeah, definitely. So many of these conditions have typically been thought of as pediatric. And so things like cerebral palsy and spina bifida are often, you know, thought about and talked about in that pediatric sphere. They start in childhood. The pediatricians are very familiar with these conditions. Adult sort of systems and care teams and providers have not generally had a focus on this type of clinical condition, given that it was often thought of as a pediatric issue. But as time has gone on and we're, you know, pretty good in the medical system about trying to keep patients with these conditions healthy through their pediatric years, most of them have good long life expectancies. And there's lots of reason to think that they'll still have needs for support in their adult years as well. And you also help with I mean, as you said, everything changes, including, I guess, funding, right? Right. I mean, do you help with how to access and then ultimately pay for these services? Yeah, so we are very fortunate in the Transitional and Lifelong Care Program that was funded through an initiative of the Southwest Lynn way back in 2015. And the purpose of that really was to make sure that it wasn't just sort of, you know, one individual focusing on one thing. And so in our TLC program, we have a nurse practitioner, we have a social worker, a physiotherapist, an occupational therapist, a speech Mm. and language pathologist, a dietitian, and a rehab assistant, as well as, of course, our coordinator and administrative structures to support all of those people working in the program. And so, for example, our social worker might become very involved in advocating for or applying for adult support funding programs or things like that. That team, a lot of different facets that the team is covering. So both physical and sort of, I guess, neurological or psychological mental development type issues are covered? 
Yeah, it's a broad range, as you can imagine, based on the conditions that we see. So cerebral palsy, for example, represents a huge spectrum of sort of different clinical presentations, Mm. ranging from people who are, you know, very functional, might have a limp or some pain, but, Mm -hmm. you know, have gone all the way through school and have no limitations from a cognitive standpoint, all the way through to people who are more dependent for care and, you know, their family members sort of providing all of their care on their behalf. Right. And so we see quite a wide range. And so you can imagine that the needs that each of these different types of patients might have are vast. And so for some patients, I tell them that I might be the least important part of the team for them. Maybe the social worker or the physiotherapist is the most important part of the team for them. Right. And for others, maybe their needs are more sort of in mind. It sounds like it would be a daunting transition. What about, you talked about families who are providing care, what happens when, I mean, in many cases, obviously, the patient is now an adult, and there's a certain amount of independence they might are making, perhaps want to make decisions on their own. How does that play out? Yeah, that's always kind of an interesting thing to try to navigate, I think, for us as care providers, but also for family members as care providers, and for the individual patient themselves, who's sort of hopefully trying to learn to use their own voice if they have the capacity to do so. Mm-hmm. And so we always try to kind of meet patients and families where they are. And so especially when we do have the opportunity to meet people when they're sort of more in their adolescent age frame, then we kind of start to gradually introduce the idea of, you Mm. know, maybe we'll do part of this appointment with your parent out of the room so that you have an opportunity to talk to us privately on your own. And, you know, maybe we're going to look to you more for some of those decisions with your parent providing support instead of looking to your parent for decisions with you providing your own input. So we try to sort of gradually make that shift over time for people who are able and have the capacity to be that driver of their own healthcare. because absolutely, if they can be, they should be. Right. So I guess making that, again, that transition from pediatric to adult care, you have to change physicians, correct, in many of these cases? Yeah. It's, yes, definitely. So can you talk a little bit about the challenges of that? First of all, is it difficult to find an adult care provider? Definitely. And yeah. I always want to be careful about, you know, I'm certainly not the one living the experience. So I want to make sure I don't put words in the mouths of my patients. But mm-hmm. what I observe is that many of our patients would have been receiving care through pediatric services, obviously, when they were in their sort of sub 18 years. And as they transition to the other side, you know, just as we talked about, policies are sort of restrictive in terms of what pediatric providers can do beyond that age range. And so often people have to start looking to, for example, even a primary care physician mm-hmm. or a nurse practitioner or, you know, a family doctor, in other words, because maybe their care has always been provided through a general pediatrician before. So they may not even have that sort of main quarterback person who's known them through their lives from mm-hmm. a healthcare standpoint. And finding a, a general practitioner provider on the adult side can be difficult, as you know, for anybody, but certainly for people who have more complex healthcare needs. And that's just sort of the, you know, at the ground level, many of them have also had different pediatric specialty providers involved throughout their life who may or may not hand off to an equivalent adult specialty provider on the other side of that sort of 18-year divide. And so we, we are often trying to help our patients sort of coordinate that and make sure that if they have an adult provider in a certain specialty area that they get one. Or if they need one, they get one. And, um, you know, maybe they don't need one anymore, but we need to be monitoring for different symptoms and things that may arise over the years so that we can alert a new adult provider at some point if they need one down the road. 
Right. So it's a lot of sort of coordination from a medical standpoint. And so does the team at the Transitional Lifelong Care, I mean, would you then, is it up to the family to find these new professionals or do you really advocate for them in that category? We try our best to advocate for them. And I think it's a lot to ask families to find those people for themselves. The biggest one that we often have to put a little bit into their hands is to find their primary care provider, family doctor, nurse practitioner, because that's not sort of a direct referral that we can usually make. It's sometimes hard to find practices that are accepting patients. And so we can try. And if we know of anyone who's accepting, we certainly do try to help with that. But, you know, we would not expect patients and families to find on their own, you know, an adult neurologist or whatever the case may be. We would help right. coordinate those referrals. And obviously the concerns and the challenges would differ depending on the patient and the condition, but what are some of the common problems that the team has had to deal with when families are trying to make this transition? Well, it's again, highly variable, as you mentioned. So the, I mean, just in this patient population, we can see anything from, you know, headaches, mood problems, sleep issues, pain, gastrointestinal challenges, bowel and bladder control, skin breakdown. That's kind of like a a medical list. But then beyond that, maybe they have equipment that they need and it's going to have to be replaced in their adult years. Mm. Maybe they're going to have a transition from pediatric to adult social services funding programs. Maybe they're transitioning out of high school into university or out of high school into supportive day programming. So, you know, there's quite a range. And even from the perspective of home care supports, many of our patients receive home care supports for their sort of basic care needs on a regular basis, but they transition to an adult home care team. So there's just, you know, so many different points of transition for them that need to be addressed. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it could be overwhelming. I mean, how in the world did people manage this before the Transitional Lifelong Care Program existed? You said it it came around in 2015, right? That's when it That's right, that's right. I mean, I'm not being facetious. How did people manage before that? I mean, it seems so daunting. Well, first of all, I appreciate the vote of confidence that (laughs) It sounds like you think we're doing a good job, and I hope that our patients and people who we support would agree with you. We certainly do our best, and I know that we're not perfect, and we don't get to every need as quickly as we would like to, but we are certainly trying. I think it is really daunting, and I think that it was a major struggle for people You know, before there was a support program available for them, and even for some people now that there is a support program available for them, because there's lots of times where we have great ideas of what we think our patients need, but it's still difficult to access those services or, you know, there's limited funds or there's limited PSW support available in the community or Mm -hmm. whatever the case may be. So I think it is still a very challenging issue. I hope that we help somewhat. I'm confident that we do, (laughs) Um, but there's always more work to be done. Some of your care, I suppose, must extend to the caregivers, yes? Sometimes they're facing challenges themselves during this transition, obviously. Definitely. I think, you know, from the perspective of the caregiver, there's a lot that they're often physically navigating, like the caregivers are aging themselves, right? And so if they've been providing a lot of physical care to Mm -hmm. a child with a disability, that becomes more difficult for them as time goes on. Mm -hmm. And although we are not their care providers directly, we can, you know, start to try to identify for them, like, you know, maybe that's something that we need to have you talk to your family doctor about. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they're having caregiver burnout or strain Mm -hmm. or stress in their own personal relationships or, you know, struggling to figure out what's going to happen if I get sick down the road, who's going to care for my loved one. So a lot of that sort of social transition involves navigating the high care provider burden that many of these caregivers are experiencing. And do you ever encounter a situation where the caregivers are reluctant or resistant to the change? 
I definitely. And that's yeah. actually even that's demonstrated in the literature, too, that this is sometimes a challenge that people don't want to transition. Yeah. And I can't blame them, frankly, because, you know, it's hard to leave behind the system that you've known where you have felt supported and probably have navigated through some difficult medical situations with trusted providers. It's a really difficult thing to sort of leave that behind. There are arguments for why it's a good idea. So for many of our patients developmentally, it makes sense to try to, you know, move towards some of that, at least attempt to establish more independence or autonomy in taking care of their own health if they have the capacity to do so. And certainly, you know, again, the pediatric system is not designed to maintain care for people through their adult years. And so just from a policy and health resource standpoint, there's a reason to make that change. But it's a difficult process for lots of people. So your involvement, the team's involvement, say with a family, would how what kind of duration would that cover? I mean, would you be involved during a start at, say, what, like age 15, 16, and then continue past, like a couple years at least? Yeah, so that's kind of like our ideal is to start to meet people when they're in their teen years. <laughs> that doesn't always work out that way. We got lots of referrals for the first time for an adult with CP who's 52 and has care needs. And so we accept those too. But that obviously means we've missed sort of that period of transition where we had hoped we could have provided some support. And hopefully we'll, we'll have less of those as the program is around longer and we can kind of catch all those people kind of in advance as much as possible. But ideally, we would get involved in sort of the mid to late teen years. And we would not ever let the patient and their family go if they felt that we could still provide a service to them. So that's that lifelong part Mm, where you can stay in our program if you need us. If you don't need us, then you are welcome to sort of put us down and pick us back up later if you need us later. Right. And so how, I mean, I imagine there are a lot of families in this situation who maybe are not aware of the existence of your team, right? How do they, I guess that recommendation would, referral would come from a family doctor, but how do people find us? access? Yeah, how do you, how do they <laughs> yeah. find this help? Yeah, I think we've become a little bit more well-known within okay. this sort of, this is a relatively small community of people with these conditions. And I, so I think a lot of people know about us. Okay. People who are transitioning now, certainly it seems to be something that they're aware of. And interestingly, I think has alleviated a little bit of some of that sort of anticipatory anxiety that families often have about that transition from pediatric to adult care, because at least they've got an idea that there is a program compared to people who would have transitioned in, you know, 2013 and had no idea where they were going. So I think that helps a little bit. And certainly, you know, we've tried to get our our program out to primary care providers in the community and things like that. So a lot of our referrals do come in from the community, especially for those people who transitioned years ago when we weren't in existence. I probably should have asked at the outset, but what? how many people are on the team, the um, TLC like, team? How many providers or how many patients? Uh, oh, both those questions. I love them both. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, oh, I should have counted ahead of time. Let me just do a quick head count. Um, so we have two physiatrists, a nurse practitioner, social worker, PT, OT, speech and language, dietitian, and our rehab assistant and our coordinator and admin assistant. So that'd be 11 of us who are kind of the team here Mm -hmm. at Parkwood Institute. In terms of patient numbers, I was trying to do a quick count earlier. It's a bit hard to track, but we're probably nearing the 1,000 patients served at least at some point, Mark. Not all of them stick around and come back over and over, but many of them do. And some of them would just come in once a year kind of for a check-in, and some of them would come repeatedly and see multiple providers on the team. So a high variability in terms of how often they stop in and see some TLC team member at Parkwood. Right. So again, you're confident that patients and families and caregivers are through their professional contacts already, they become aware of the program, right? I think 
they do. And I think that the pediatric specialty providers for sure know that we exist. And I think that's been helped through my own linkages with the Department of Pediatrics. And so, you know, most of our referrals on the pediatric side actually come from pediatric orthopedics or pediatric neurology or one of those types of programs. And so they know us very well. So they have no hesitation sending the referral over. Right. I mean, obviously, it can be a complicated question, and there's so many different concerns and needs that different patients have, but is there one kind of piece of advice you find yourself often giving to families and and patients who find themselves in this situation, Mm -hmm. just about to transition from pediatric to adult care? Oh, that's a tough one. (laughs) I think if I could say two things, maybe. One thing is, you know, just try to prepare yourself just because it's coming. Like there's no stopping it. The transition is coming to the adult side. And so if you can kind of arm yourself with a little bit of knowledge of what that might look like, and that might Mm. be by talking to someone like me in a transition appointment when you're an adolescent, or it might be from talking to a trusted pediatric provider, or I think a lot of people have made their own connections with other people with similar conditions or family members of other people with similar conditions. Just try to arm yourself with a little bit of knowledge and get ready. And then the other thing that I would say is use your voice. So, you know, you yourself or a caregiver on your behalf, you know what you need and what you don't know and what you don't feel prepared for. And, you know, if you can let us know what it is that you need, then we're happy to try to support whatever that is. Wow. Excellent. Is there a message that you'd have for healthcare providers who work with these populations, something that you would want them to to know? Absolutely. So I think, you know, people who are already working with this population probably know very well how rewarding it can be. Many of these patients face a lot of challenges and that said, are able to, you know, rise above them in a remarkable way and find joy in the little things and, you know, experience big, full, happy lives. And I think it's awesome and rewarding to have the opportunity to be a part of that. And so anyone who already works with them probably already knows that anyone who isn't working with them, but who might want to, if that's a little hook for you, then please take it as such. And I also think, you know, I hope that anyone in the community who might be listening to this, who's, you know, maybe a little bit understandably nervous about taking on these patients with multiple needs or complex medical histories, Hmm. we're here. And if we can partner with you, because, you know, I'm not a primary care provider and these patients need that too. And if we can partner with you to kind of share that load, we're very happy to do that. Wow. Well, that sounds excellent. Obviously, in in these situations, social support is so important, Dr. Cassidy. How does the team at the um, TLC help with that? So I think it is so important, exactly as you said, and we try to help with that in a number of ways. So, you know, one of the things that I mentioned is, you know, social support can mean lots of different things. So Hmm. one of the things that we've already talked about a bit is trying to address those sort of non-medical needs that patients may have related to, you know, linking up with an organization that can help them find employment if that's something important to them or helping Hmm. to access funding programs through our social worker, whatever the case may be. But the other thing that we hear a lot from patients is that they just want opportunities to hear from other people with conditions like them or we Mm. want you know i i as a caregiver might be really interested in meeting with another person who is caregiving as well and try to share some stories and find some community support that way and that's sometimes a really difficult thing to find and establish. And it's actually one of the things that we're working on in the TLC program. We have a research study that we're just kind of getting underway with where we're trying to identify all of the elements that we might find important if we were to develop like a peer support program where we could link up 
people who have lived experience with these conditions or caregivers who might find the need to kind of connect with each other. And so we're kind of in the process of trying to formally make a kind of program that mm. people who, who make use of TLC services might be able to find that a useful service as well. And we do also have a social group through the TLC program, which is one opportunity for at least a few patients in our program. They get together with our rehab assistant on a regular basis just to kind of hang out together, mm. get away from, you know, whatever's going on outside of here and they play games or watch movies or, you know, do different things. So we do try to support that in, in a couple of different ways because it's so, so important. And it's not just all about the medical condition. It's about living with the medical condition. Right. For sure. That sounds like invaluable assistance. Yeah. I'm sure this information has been invaluable. I hope to our listeners. And thanks for joining us today, Dr. Cassidy. Thank you so much, Ian. I really enjoyed it. That's it for this episode of the Doc Talks podcast. Thanks for joining us and join us next time when we'll continue our conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at St. Joseph's London or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Until then, stay healthy. Thank you.